Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Ed Ayers. We're going to start the show today on a very strange day in May of 1780. In the middle of the morning, the sun just disappeared from the sky. Here's an account from Boston. Those who had good eyesight could scarcely see to read common print, and it was the judgment of many that at about 12 o'clock, the daylight was not greater, if so great, as that of bright moonlight. Across New England, people gazed up at the darkened sky with fear and wonder. They gathered for their midday meal in a murky gloom. Night birds sang through the afternoon. Those who tried to read found they couldn't make out the print. In Connecticut, the Legislative Assembly was in the middle of a session. And as the light left the sky, plenty of lawmakers thought it was time to wrap up their discussion of fishing regulations. But Senator Abraham Davenport calmly called for candles. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause of an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles be brought. Finally, in the late afternoon, the darkness began to lift, but the relief didn't last very long. When the moon rose that night, it was blood red. The next morning, things were back to normal, but all across New England, people couldn't stop talking about what they called the Great Dark Day, and no one could agree on why it had happened. The most common explanation was religious. A Massachusetts church deacon named Samuel Gashall spoke for many when he said, Will any man say that the darkness on the 19th day of May was not the voice of the Lord? For there was no second cause. But in the Age of Enlightenment, a lot of Americans looked for a more earthly explanation. Amateur scientists across New England had jotted down observations as the dark day unfolded. Newspapers quickly realized that there was a market for these stories, and so editors invited readers to weigh in. Here's a notice from the Connecticut Current. Our ingenious and philosophical customers are desired to send an account of the particular phenomena attending the darkness, particularly an exact description of the time of its beginning, continuance, and end, the appearance and tincture of clouds, and other visible objects. Readers were happy to oblige, and their theories ran the gamut. Maybe the Earth was passing through the tail of a comet, or maybe clouds had blocked out the sun, or no, a blazing star had shut out the sunlight, or better yet, a mountain did. The writers buttressed their arguments with observations of what they'd personally witnessed. They reinforced each other's ideas and poked holes in each other's arguments. It was a remarkably early instance of crowdsourcing. Now, I take the immediate cause of the obstruction of light to be vast quantities of elastic, heterogeneous vapors generated in consequence of the snow which covered the earth the winter past. The vast body of smoke from the woods, which had been burning for many days, 
condensed by the action of winds from opposite points, may perhaps be sufficient causes to produce the surprising darkness. And in case you're wondering, more than two centuries later, scientists concluded that that last observer was correct, that the darkness had in fact resulted from an enormous forest fire in Ontario. The Great Dark Day is hardly the only celestial event from the past that Americans have tried to understand. After taking a long, hard look at the recent solar eclipse, of course, through appropriate eyewear, we were inspired to go into the Backstory Vault and bring you these stories of Americans trying to make sense of the skies. We'll hear how a farm boy from Kansas discovered the dwarf planet Pluto and how sending men into space radically revised our image of the Earth. We'll also hear from folks who signed up for a flight to the moon back in the 1960s and are still waiting for their tickets. But first, let's go back to the 19th century for some Kentucky weather that beat out the great dark day for sheer weirdness. Producer Jess Ingebretson has the story. It all started in Bath County, Kentucky. One Friday in March of 1876, a Mrs. Allen Crouch was out in her yard making soap. Suddenly, little flecks of something began falling around her. She thought it was meat. The sky was perfectly clear at the time. This is from a local newspaper article. And she said it fell like large snowflakes, the pieces as a general thing not being much larger. One piece fell near her, which was three or four inches square. Neighbors flocked to the site of the mysterious shower. The next day, one visitor said that he'd seen bits of meat strewn across the yard and stuck to the Crouch's fence. Two local gentlemen sampled the meat and opined that it was probably mutton or venison. Local reporters picked up the story, and soon the New York Times was on it. Their headline read, Flesh Descending in a Shower, an Astounding Phenomenon in Kentucky. What had happened in Bath County? Americans were eager for answers. So scientists packed samples of the meat in little jars of glycerin and shipped them to labs up and down the East Coast. The big question was, what was this stuff? Some scientists argued that it wasn't meat at all. They thought it was a kind of plant material. But then a doctor named A. Mead Edwards in Newark decided to do some sleuthing. He had read in the New York medical record that the mystery rain from Kentucky was actually lung tissue. So he set out to gather as many samples as he could. After tracking down seven and putting each under a microscope, he was convinced that the vegetable hypothesis was wrong. Here's what he wrote to Scientific American in July 1876. Every specimen I have examined has proven to be of animal origin, showing that the Kentucky shower was a veritable meat shower. As to whence it came, I have no theory. But Edwards did mention one theory that had gotten traction back in Kentucky. The favorite theory is that the shower proceeded from a flock of buzzards who, as is their custom, seeing one of their companions disgorge himself, immediately followed suit. In fact, such an occurrence has been actually seen to occur, so that it would seem that the whole matter is capable of a reasonable and simple explanation. A few months after the shower, scientists still hadn't figured out for sure what had happened in Mrs. Crouch's front yard. And that opened up space for some less serious interpretations. Whence came this remarkable rain? 
the most obvious conclusion is that the Kentucky shower of meat was really a meteoric shower. This is from a tongue-in-cheek New York Times editorial by the humorist William Alden. According to the present theory of astronomers, an enormous belt of meteoric stones constantly revolves around the sun. And when the Earth comes in contact with this belt, she is soundly pelted. Similarly, we may suppose that there revolves about the sun a belt of venison, mutton, and other meat divided into small fragments, which are precipitated upon the Earth whenever the latter crosses their path. Of course, Alden wasn't serious about the idea of flying space meat. But behind his sarcasm was a real critique of astronomers. Of course, the scientific persons will sneer at this explanation inasmuch as they have not been the first to propose it and will deny that there are any grounds whatever for a belief in cosmical meat. But if they believe in a hypothetical belt of meteoric stones, simply because certain stones occasionally fall upon the Earth's surface, why should they not believe in a possible belt of fresh meat? To get where Alden's coming from, you have to understand how Americans thought about astronomy in 1876. During the 1700s, people believed meteors were just an old wives' tale. Rocks falling from the sky? How would they have gotten up there in the first place? It didn't make any sense. Then, in 1833, a huge meteor shower forced American scientists to rethink. By the late 1860s, astronomers had reached a new consensus. Meteors were real. But that consensus was new, and scientists didn't have the authority then that they have today. So Alden was likely speaking for many skeptical Americans in his snarky editorial. Showers of rocks, showers of meat, sure, why not? It all sounded equally ridiculous. There's an obvious need for an improved spectroscope, which will exhibit the appropriate lines for beef, mutton, venison, poultry, and fish as plainly as the present spectroscope shows the lines of hydrogen, magnesium, and other chemical elements. With such instruments, we might obtain some really satisfactory astronomical knowledge. Really satisfactory astronomical knowledge. Alden's satire made it sound like there was no such thing. And in the 19th century, in America... He was partially right. The cutting-edge astronomy was in Britain and Germany. The U.S. was a backwater. But over the next few decades, that changed. American telescope building boomed, and by the early 20th century, Europeans were crossing the Atlantic to train in the best observatories. Within decades, Americans had classified galaxies, launched the first liquid-fuel-powered rocket, and proved that the universe is expanding. One thing they never proved, though, was what actually fell from the sky into Mrs. Crouch's yard that March day in 1876. Even now, nobody knows what happened. But there is one remaining sample of the meat rain bottled up in a museum in Lexington, Kentucky. So go on, take a look. There's still time to solve the mystery. That's former Backstory producer Jess Engebretson. She recorded that piece in 2013. Ed, Joanne, I mean, listening to these stories, there seemed to be so much mystery back in the day. And drama. (laughs) And fear. (laughs) But, you know, in the 20th century and today in the 21st century, we got the science all figured out. We're not scared. 
Yeah, we about, knew exactly the minute that the eclipse was going to no, peak right. over where we stood that's today. That's yeah. right. You can tune into all these TV stations to watch it on TV. Uh, we gathered in groups of friends, maybe have a few drinks while the eclipse is going on. Where's the mystery in all of that? <laughs> where to find those glasses? Well, you know, mystery has its ups and downs, <laughs> I would say. I mean, I would say if you look back to, say, the late 18th century, very early 19th century, people at the time were immersed enough in enlightenment ideas of science that there were a lot of people who knew, okay, there's got to be a logical explanation for this that they were trying to figure out. But there were a lot of other people who were just terrified at what was going on, didn't understand it. I mean, how could you not, in this time period, take a solar eclipse as an omen of something? And you know, Joanne, there are different kinds of logic that people can find behind these eclipses. Nat Turner, an enslaved man in Virginia in 1831, had been poring over the Bible, looking for signs of ways to interpret the world around him. And in August of 1831, when the sun turned red because of atmospheric conditions, he took that, as you said, Joanne, as an omen, not a mystery, but as a very clear sign, as he said, that the time had come for the last to be first and the first to be last. So you have competing logics uh, in which you have that of the Bible and of prophecy, kind of in tension with that hmm. of science. Did he follow up on the omen? Did he act on it? He did. This began the largest slave revolt in American history. Okay, so Ed, I'm gonna I'm gonna see your 1831. I'm gonna raise it with another 1831. Ah, wow. We've talked about uh, a couple different kinds of logic here. We talked about science. We talked about this sense of the supernatural or omens. I'm gonna throw political logic in the mix because in 1831, that's the time when Andrew Jackson is president. He's wildly popular. He's celebrated all over the place, and Jacksonian newspaper editors who wanted to sort of jump on that bandwagon and celebrate him advertised the fact that during this total eclipse, only one thing would be able to be seen in the sky, and that is the bright light of what they called Jupiter Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Did that require special glasses? Really, really special glasses, I think. You know, it's interesting. By 1889, when Mark Twain writes A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, the, no the novel that's kind of thinly disguised commentary in present day, the hero is getting ready to be killed by the benighted yokels back in ye old medieval England when he <laughs> remembers that an eclipse of the sun is coming. And he calls upon the sun to darken and it does, and his life is saved. So in the space of a century, we go from having a knowledge of eclipse being an arcane knowledge that only the Enlightenment figures would have to being in a basically a kid's book. Shows how far we had moved in, in just 100 years. In a moment... A commercial airline offers flights to the moon, meals not included. But first, a word from today's sponsor. In 1894, a young mathematician named Percival Lowell spent his considerable family fortune building an observatory in Arizona. Lowell believed there was life on Mars, and the Lowell Observatory spent over a decade looking for evidence of an advanced civilization there. They even mapped 
what they thought were canals on the planet's surface. Lowell's sketches and photos were published in newspapers and influenced a lot of people, including H.G. Wells, who would go on to write the original War of the Worlds. But most scientists thought Lowell was a crackpot. And sure enough, by 1906, bigger, better telescopes had effectively disproved his life on Mars hypothesis. So to revive his reputation, Percival Lowell launched a new quest. Astronomers had noted a strange wobble in the orbits of Neptune and Uranus. Lowell believed an unknown ninth planet was the cause. He called it Planet X. He latched onto this idea with the same kind of passion that he latched onto the idea of Mars. But for this one, there was a little more evidence. This is Michael Byers, who wrote a novel about the search for Planet X called Percival's Planet. Byers says that after Lowell died in 1916, his observatory was left with a strange mission. The terms of Lowell's will uh, required them to continue the search for Planet X. (laughs) They didn't really want to do it. They had a lot of other projects in hand. But the will said they had to keep looking for it. So they figured, well, let's find a guy who can sit in a corner and look for Planet X while the rest of us get on with the real work. The guy they found was a Kansas farm boy named Clyde Tumbaugh. And he's the protagonist of Michael Byers' novel. In 1926, Clyde was 20 years old, stuck on the family farm, and bored to tears. Clyde encountered an article in, I think it was Scientific American or Popular Mechanics or something like that, um, which captured a bit of the craze that was going on at that time for telescope making. Home telescope making, if you can imagine this. Hmm. And this is from scratch. This is you make your own lenses. Um, he actually managed to make his own telescopes that were good enough to resolve images of Jupiter. Hmm. He was going to go to college, and he was just kind of making telescopes as a hobby when all of a sudden a freak hailstorm came up and destroyed the crops that were going to finance his trip to college. So his plans were foiled. He was desperate, so he took these drawings, these very meticulous and perfect drawings of Jupiter that he had made, and sent them off just on a whim to a guy called Vesto Slifer at Lowell Observatory saying, do you need a guy like me? As it happened, this was the exact moment when the guys at Lowell Observatory were looking for a guy just like him. And why did they want Clyde? They wanted Clyde to sit in the dark and in the cold, not only guide the telescope overnight, but then to take these photographic plates into a room and during the day look to see whether they had captured any flickering image. And that image, they thought, might be Planet X? Exactly. But he was the perfect person to do this job and ultimately to find something. The same qualities that allowed him to make his own telescopes to a kind of industrial level of perfection allowed him also to sit behind this telescope and the blink comparator for hours a day Weeks and weeks and months and months and months in a row looking at nothing. (laughs) Describe the day he found something. He'd been looking for about 10 months uh, by this time, and he finally pulled a set of plate pairs, and he found something. But there was a problem. It was tiny. The most infinitesimal speck that you can possibly picture, it could not have exerted the kind of gravitational influence over Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune and Uranus that Lowell had seen. 
So they didn't call it a planet. They called it a trans-Neptunian object. Ah, a trans-Neptunian object. <laughs> One of those. They didn't want to call it a planet. How did a trans-Neptunian object turn into Pluto? The observatory, they knew their reputation was on the line, at least in the astronomical community. It would really help them if they had found what they'd been looking for all this time to kind of redeem Percival Lowell's reputation. The announcement on the anniversary of Lowell's birthday went out saying that they had found something. Well, it turned out it was huge news. Uh, this is from March 14, 1930. The headline said, A ninth planet greater than Earth found. New discovery bears out calculations of Lowell and is most important since that of Neptune. Savants think it may be bigger than Jupiter. It was a big deal. For whatever reason, let's call it um, pride at American know-how and can-do. Let's call it a, a kind of good news story in the very bad news season. That was 1930. We're in the heart of the, the Great Depression. This caught fire. Clyde Tombaugh, a kid from Kansas, became world famous. Tell me what world famous means in 1930. I mean, <laughs> where, where was it he means, appearing? It means you're in the newsreels. Uh-huh. Uh, school children from across at least this country are writing to you with a suggestion for what to call this uh, new planet. Oh, what are some of the suggestions? So some of the names were Splendor, Amphrodite, Salacia, Pax, Utopia, Tantalus, Atlas, Maximum. I like that one. But the fun ones are the ones that are from people who have no idea what they're saying. Uh, like uh, Clyde's pastor wrote, uh, dear sirs, I'm joining the rest of the world in sending congratulations to Mr. Tombaugh for his recent discovery, and he suggests the name Burdett for the planet. Burdett? Burdett. Where does that come from? That's Clyde's hometown in Kansas. Ah. <laughs> oh, perfect. Here's a... Here's a uh, dear sirs, I enjoyed reading about the new planate in the Literary Digest. I thought of a new name, so here they are. Rima, she's at the rim. Janus, god of the new year 1930. Eagle, in honor of our American eagle. Ah, Eagle. Any other, yeah. any other pro-American names? How about Usofa? Usofa? U-S of A, pronounced Usofa. Ah, not bad. Not bad, huh? All along, in fact, the staff had, had decided on two names, first being Minerva, goddess of wisdom. But that was the name of a, a fairly prominent asteroid, so it was taken. Uh, the other one that made sense to them was Pluto. Why Pluto? Pluto is the god of the outer limits of darkness and death. It also, its first two letters contain Percival Lowell's initials. Uh -huh. What could be better? Now, what was the reaction of the scientific community at this time? Skeptical. Already by 1931, there was serious discussion among astronomers as to how to really describe this thing. Because its orbit was strange, its, its angle to the ecliptic was really wonky, so it's not on a flat plane like all the other planets. But there was also, at that time, there was nothing else like it. Uh, it doesn't really make sense to invent a new category for this thing. So I don't want to be too cynical here, but did many of the astronomers go along with this because discovering a new planet was good for business? My suspicion is that the astronomers at Lowell Observatory, certainly, were perfectly willing for the public to call this thing a planet. It rescued their reputation. It allowed them to continue their other missions, which were, they thought, much more scientifically valid. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in the scientific community, perhaps what happened was they saw how excited people were and didn't want to get in their way. 
Okay, I have one more question, something that doesn't make sense to me. Tomba was looking in the night sky because of a supposed gravitational pull of this big planet, Planet X. If Pluto was not the cause of this gravitational pull, where did that gravitational pull come from? That's the mystery. Here's the funny thing about this whole story. Those numbers that Percival Lowell came up with, those supposed wobbles in the outer planets, they didn't exist. <laughs> they were errors in observation. So he took, he took faulty observations, plugged them into his math, came out with the right answer, and found Pluto. Garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, Pluto out. <laughs> Very good. Michael Byers is a professor of creative writing at the University of Michigan. His novel about the discovery of Pluto is called Percival's Planet. Now there's a coda to this story. Clyde Tombaugh died in 1997. Nine years later, NASA launched the New Horizons spacecraft. It was the first spacecraft ever to set out for Pluto. Among the things it carried was Clyde Tombaugh's ashes. That's so cool. I was going to say, that's really cool. Christmas Eve 1968 marked another major milestone in astronomical history. It was the first time humans orbited the moon. That same day, Pan Am Airlines announced it was forming a waiting list for people interested in flying to the moon. More than 93,000 people signed up, wow, as passengers on the commercial airline. Departure date to be determined. Amy Hempel was one of them. I found out about Pan Am creating a list, and I turned to my dad and said, I want to go. How do I do it? And he said, well, I don't know. Let's call the travel agent. <laughs> and so we called the travel agent, and the travel agent said, you know, I think I got a flyer from Pan Am, and they are starting a moon flights list, so here's the address that you can write to. So I wrote a letter. We didn't telephone at that time, of course, because it would be long distance. <laughs> wrote a letter to Pan Am, and they sent me back my membership card with a number on it. Uh, my membership in the first moon flights club. Now, what did the card look like? Was it made of uh, anything lunar or uh, space-like? Or oh, So I do still have my first moon flights club membership card, as a matter of fact. It's uh, a wallet size. Of course, yes. And on cardboard. And in, on one side, it has a picture of Earth from the moon and two astronauts walking on the moon. And they have, I don't know what they're called, but they're self-contained breathing apparatuses attached to their spacesuits. And it says, know ye by all these presents that, and then my name is in there, Amy Hempel, Amy Stewart, has become a certified member of Pan Am's first moon flights club. And then there's a space for the number, and the number was printed on with one of those um, advance the number things. And then yeah, right. it's signed by James <laughs> Montgomery, the vice president of sales. Do you have any memory of what the number might be? Yeah. <laughs> I would never forget that. Okay. 3,384. Wow, that's early. 
I know. I have an early one, and by now, yeah. for all I know, the people ahead of me have passed away. I could be first <laughs> on the list by now. The serial number was lost on me. I, if I had known from the beginning that, that there were 88,707 passengers in front of me, uh, I, I think I would have <laughs> probably thrown in the towel. This is Bill Fox. He's also a member of the First Moon Flights Club. But in his case, the club came to him. I think it was probably second or third grade uh, when uh, we had a classroom visitor come to the school, and they gave some kind of a talk, obviously related to uh, space. And at the end of the presentation, I think someone pulled out a typewriter and typed our names on the uh, the membership cards, these little uh, cardboard uh, kind of wallet cards that we all got. Um, I kept it. Obviously, it had uh, great value and meaning to me. I, I don't have very many things from my uh, grade school years, but uh, I kept the card. The whole thing, if, if you recall the movie uh, 2001, Yes. Um, it, it has a very much a 2001 kind of feel to it. On the back, there was a picture of uh, it was kind of that um, passenger commercial flight uh, spacecraft that was uh, I think it was part of the 2001 uh, movie poster. There was a picture of that and, and a couple little uh, bullet points about Pan Am. Yeah, I, I want to descend into nostalgia for a moment, if we could. Uh, I do remember 2001. Back then, it seemed so improbably distant yes. and so improbably futuristic. And it still and seems re- distant, Ed. <laughs> Just the opposite direction. Exactly. Now, right? Right. But, you, you know, are, are you disappointed that we're not farther along in terms of uh, space flight? And maybe you, you've, you've grown reconciled with your own uh, personal failure to make it to the moon. But how about just for our society as a whole? Do, do you have some sense that, gosh, we thought we'd be so much farther along than we are now? Yeah, I, I was absolutely convinced that, it, that this was my ticket to the moon, and, uh, and me and my, uh, all of my classmates would be on board that same flight. <laughs> you know, I think I expected there might be a, a flight or two ahead of us with uh, you know, certain dignitaries and, and uh, <laughs> right. presidents and whatnot, but I, you know, I absolutely felt like commercial, fairly routine passenger travel to at least the moon uh, was, was just around the corner. And, um, you know, I think there was this sort of expectation that, that anything was possible. There were no real physical boundaries right. that you could put thousands of people together as, as a team and they could solve uh, really intractable issues and that it was just, you know, a matter of muscling up and putting enough uh, focus on it and, and you could do it. And, um, you know, it all just seemed to be falling into place. And then, uh, and then it all kind of went away. That's Bill Fox in Greenville, South Carolina. We also heard from Amy Hempel in Maui, Hawaii. You can find an image of the first Moon Flights Club membership card on our website, backstoryradio.org. We also found the letter that Pan Am enclosed with their flight membership card in 1968. Starting date of service, the letter says, is not yet known. <laughs> Coming up, a conversation with the Apollo 8 astronaut who snapped that iconic photo of Earth from space. In 1968, Apollo 8 astronauts Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders became the first people to orbit the moon. As they came around the moon for the third time, 
they caught a glimpse of the Earth rising over the lunar surface. One of them snapped a photo. In that image, the Earth is a swirling ball of blue and white, a jewel against the darkness of space. The photo became known as Earthrise, and it was reproduced across the globe in magazines like Life and Time. Robert Poole is a research fellow at the University of Central Lancashire who's written about the impact of this iconic photo. He says that until the publication of the Earthrise photo, Americans believed they lived in a world of infinite possibility. And nothing represented that more than the prospect of space travel. I see this as the tipping point, almost the tipping point of the 20th century, because the first two-thirds of the 20th century were largely about progress, or sometimes about fear of progress, but people assumed that technological progress would go on pretty much forever, that we could carry on using up the Earth and growing, and that the Earth was unlimited, and there would be no really serious environmental consequences. The Earth was so big, the, the sky was so huge, the oceans were so big, you know, we couldn't possibly fill them up, damage them, pollute them, or alter them. Of course, we, we know massively different now. And part of the reason is that sight of the Earth. It is absolutely tiny. I mean, even to us, we see the photograph and the Earth is, the photo is printed to make the Earth look fairly large. But the astronauts themselves reported the Earth was absolutely tiny. It was really hard to see it out of the window. You could easily see it. It looked beautiful and then you'd lose sight of it. You know, when I look at that photograph today, Robert, I agree that the Earth looks fragile, it looks small, and I understand it looked even smaller to the astronauts. But what strikes me is the absolute absence of boundaries compared to, let's say, those globes that we're used to looking at, which are crisscrossed mm-hmm. with boundaries, continents, divisions, basically. Um, how important was that absence of boundaries to the whole idea of a whole Earth? Well, we're so used to seeing images of the whole Earth now and to be able to take Google Earth and zoom in on any spot on it um, that it's actually quite hard to think us back to a time when you just couldn't do that and nobody knew what the Earth would actually look like seen from the outside. Most people were used to seeing globes and maps of the Earth that simply consisted mainly of political boundaries and patchwork colours. And so the, the, the view of the Earth as this blue and white abstract globe floating in space was something completely different from that. And there was an idealistic sense that once people understood, if you like, the, 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 what the Earth was really like as seen from space in its natural wholeness, that they would realise that the arguments that divide nations and peoples were really quite petty. Um, that doesn't seem to have happened, uh, but it was, it's an, it was an idealistic moment. It really was a novelty to see the Earth as a natural object. When did that idealistic moment end and what ended it? Hmm. That's harder to say. Um, in, in some ways, it went on for quite a few years because the end of the 60s, the early 70s, was the period of what we think of as the modern environmental movement. Um, there have been movements before to protect nature from man, um, you know, the Sierra Club and, and, and so on. Uh, but, you know, America was founded on the ideal of wilderness and, and naturally it follows from that the desire to protect wilderness from human activity. But the new environmentalism was all about seeing the earth and mankind as parts of a single system and humans had to operate within the physical, environmental, practical boundaries of the earth. Right. This was the period where ecology began to reign within biology and ecology was all about ecosystems and connectedness. Absolutely. Ecology booms in 1969. Uh, Again, this probably would have happened anyway, but the image of the whole earth seems to give the whole thing some kind of shape and point. 
And there was a real sense for the first time that the earth was limited and that mankind had to work within it. Robert, if you could arrange to take one photograph that would have the kind of impact that Earthrise had back in 1968, what would that photograph be today? Well, I'll tell you first that I would like to take it, but nobody's going to let me. Not a lot of people realise that it's over 40 years now, end of 1972, since any human being actually left Earth orbit. Nobody has been out to see again that blue marble view. And I would love to have another photo like that. You wouldn't have to send people to the moon in a giant rocket. It could take quite a small spacecraft. It would just have to go out on a very elliptical orbit, 11, 12,000 miles. So if there's anybody from these private rocket companies listening, let's do that. Yeah, you can make a fortune from the photograph, probably pay, pay for the rocket. But it would be marvellous to have a human being take another photo of the blue marble and compare the changes that have happened in the Earth over 40 years. And that would be a fantastic news story, and it might help also reinforce the environmental message that came out of the very first sight of the whole Earth all those years ago. Robert Poole is a research fellow at the University of Central Lancashire. He's the author of Earthrise, How Man First Saw the Earth. Now we're actually going to hear from one of those Apollo 8 astronauts. William Anders took the famous Earthrise photograph that inspired so many in the late 1960s. I asked him about his historic lunar flight. Well, we were doing our jobs. We were uh, fighter pilots, test pilots, and so this was all sort of the, uh, just our line of work. But to see, you know, the back side of the moon, the front side up close, was all very exciting. But really, in retrospect, the most exciting part was to see the Earth from a lunar perspective. And were you surprised when the Earth just popped up in your window? Yes, I was. Uh, because we were going backwards, uh, looking down at the moon uh, from the direction we came, that's all we saw was the moon. And it wasn't until we reoriented the spacecraft, turned it around, and faced it forward that we were able to see uh, the Earth coming up over the lunar horizon. Uh, I called it out. I think everybody saw it about the same time. There was a scramble uh, for cameras. I was sort of the official photographer of the flight, though I'd had essentially no training. Why were you the official photographer? I don't know. <laughs> <That's> just, <laughs> somebody made me the official photographer. Uh, and if you can, try to recall that first moment, what you were thinking about when you looked back at the Earth. Well, the first moment I looked back at the Earth was uh, going to the moon uh, and uh, see it shrinking as we moved away. And as a matter of fact, uh, from a lunar distance, the Earth is about the size of your fist at arm's length. Wow. Not big. So that impressed me almost immediately that our planet physically was really insignificant. Uh, but uh, that uh, even though it wasn't physically significant, it was our home and therefore important to us. And we ought to learn to treat it better. Bill, you know NASA records everything. And... Fortunately, we're able to listen to the tape from the very moment that you and your two colleagues um, saw the Earth rising. And we can ID you because you're the guy asking for the colored film. I'm going to play it for you now. Oh, go ahead. Oh, my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, that pretty. Hey, don't take that. It's not scheduled. <laughs> you got a color film, Jim? 
Hand me a roll of color, quick. Oh, you? man, that's crazy. Quick. Down here. Just grab me a color. Listening to that tape, I think I detected a little bit of edge creeping into your voice, when, especially when you were asking for that colored film. Am I right about that? Well, Borman was very focused on, on uh, doing our mission, which was to test out these uh, space vehicles. I'd been assigned the job of photographing the lunar surface. Uh, the Earth was not in the flight plan at all. You might wonder why. I have, but I've uh, never come up with a good answer except we just didn't think about it, or NASA didn't think about it. But uh, I knew basically where the film was, so once we started taking pictures of the Earth, I just wanted to get on with it. I think I blazed a shot off with the camera I had in my hand at the time, uh, but then managed to get uh, Lovell or somebody to pass me a uh, magazine of color film and slapped on the long lens and started blazing away. You made a lot of effort to, to bring and then grab that color film. Why, why was color film so important to you? Well, the, the Earth is colorful. You know, black and white may be good for uh, technical analysis. Uh, certainly in the moon, you didn't need color film. And I was challenged by uh, others, uh, why take color film when the moon isn't colorful? But uh, luckily... We had it, and uh, that's what I wanted to take a uh, picture of this beautiful and colorful planet we live on. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, the people down in the photo lab picked this one color one that I took that has become the uh, iconic Earthrise picture. What, uh, what I find is ironic that I just learned here recently that the Earthrise was printed upside down. <laughs> In other words, they flipped it. And so I've never been able to, I've always wondered why I couldn't figure out the continents. And if you, I guess if you look at the negative through the back, you can figure it out. But I thought that was ironic because this thing's been, you know, uh, replicated a million times, probably on stamps and other things. At the time that you took this series of photographs, did you have any idea about the kind of impact it would have upon your return? No, I, frankly, I did not. Uh, we, I was just out there doing my job. Here was a new target. And that's why I told Lovell, don't worry, this may be the first Earth rise, but there'll be uh, hopefully eight more in our orbit so we can get a good one later. I think we probably did take some later, but of course it was the first Earth rise that... Uh, had all the historic significance. Yes, in fact, you said quite famously that we came all this way to discover the moon, and what we really did discover is Earth. Well, it didn't take long to realize that the moon had been pulverized by a meteoritic bombardment through the eons. It was just a big mess. Uh, I described it as dirty beach sand, where a lot of people have been walking in the sand and having <laughs> barbecues there and getting uh, charcoal spread around. Uh, I caught a lot of heck from uh, <laughs> poets on that one. But yet here was here was our home planet, uh, looking uh, beautiful, serene, delicate, looking peaceful. There was no uh, country divisions. And it was sort of weird to think that, well, on one side of it, uh, people are trying to kill folks on the other side of it. You know, why don't we try to get together? Did seeing the Earth from the moon change any of your political views? Well, yes, I, uh, I must say I, uh, it made me realize that, uh, that the Earth wasn't the center of the, of the universe and that uh, religions and things like that who were based on uh, Earth being particularly special had a certain flaw in them. 
and I have yet to fully square that, but uh, there's a heck of a lot more Earths out there than even a supercomputer can keep track of. Yeah. You know, expectations were so high in the 1960s for what might come of the this, this space program in general, the Apollo missions. How, how do you assess what we've accomplished um, and where have we fallen short? Well, I think uh, people have lost track and NASA has not faced up to the fact that uh, Apollo was a, uh, a Cold War policy by Kennedy. Uh, it's been coded, given a patina of exploration, but that really wasn't what the American taxpayers were paying for. They were paying to beat those dirty commies. And when the flag went into the moon, thanks to Neil and Buzz, that basically uh, satisfied the objective of what Apollo was all about. Now, of course, it, was, it became a jobs program for NASA after that, and so uh, that, plus everybody's excitement about uh, the exploration phase of it that there was, propelled NASA to keep going. We would have had uh, 30 lunar landings if uh, Nixon and others hadn't uh, pulled them up short. So I think the lesson that I've learned from that is admit what your real goal is and why. And don't try to kid yourself that uh, just because you've made one objective that has been supported by the public, that you uh, therefore are destined to and will be funded for making some other uh, destination. Bill, if you could visit one place on Earth or beyond that you haven't been to yet, where would it be? Well, I mean, if if I wasn't paying for it... You're not paying for it. Yeah, yeah. Backstory has a huge travel budget. Yeah, I you name the you name the place. Yeah, I don't think it would be worth it to everybody else. I wouldn't. I would have enjoyed. I'd have, I'd have voted for uh, Apollo thirty five if I could have landed. But from a re- responsible uh, by that time working in Washington uh, policymaker, I just didn't think it was worth it. Uh, eventually, uh, humankind will go to Mars. I think the talk uh, that we hear lately from the enthusiasts is massively uh, premature. We don't have the equipment. We don't know how to solve the radiation problem. Uh, Zero-G for that amount of time is tough. And I hope that the talk of going here in five years or something like that doesn't eventually turn people off. But sooner or later, Earthlings will go to Mars. And I hope they do it as Earthlings, not jingoistic uh, Americans trying to beat the Chinese, trying to beat the Russians, to beat the, uh, you know, the Cubans. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks, and keep up the good work. Apollo 8 astronaut William Anders is a retired major general in the United States Air Force. He is one of just 24 people who have left Earth's orbit and seen the whole Earth. That's going to do it for today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about American history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And if you like the show, feel free to review it in Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. 
This episode of Backstory was produced by Jesse Dukes, Nina Ernest, Jesse Gabretson, Emily Charnock, and Tony Field. Our staff also includes Bridget McCarthy, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Robin Blue. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. And thanks, as always, to the Johns Hopkins University Studio in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.